Welcome back to the Religions of the Ancient Mediterranean podcast. We're in the Greco-Roman Association series and we're continuing on with looking at some other immigrant groups and associations in the Greco-Roman world. So far we started to look at the Phoenicians and Syrians, now we turn to the Judeans and start to introduce Diaspora Judaism or Judean culture within the Diaspora context and uh, look at a couple of scholars' views on the overall question of how Judeans fit and did not fit within the Greek cities of the ancient Mediterranean and Roman cities as well. And we start to get on to some of the primary evidence, in particular passages in Josephus's uh, Judean or Jewish Antiquities, where Josephus collects together a variety of decrees that have to do with Roman authorities' relations with Judean groups and also civic authorities and therefore the sort of representative bodies of the populations of cities and Greek cities in Asia Minor in particular. So I hope you enjoy this first step into looking at Judeans uh, as ethnic groups and as ethnic associations within the context of Greco-Roman culture and the question of how they fit or did not fit within this context. We then continue with the same topic in the following episode. So with both the Phoenicians and Syrians and the Judeans, we're talking about immigrants that have come from what scholars call the Levant, the eastern coast of the Mediterranean. We're in the same general region with both the Judeans and the Phoenicians. Remember that Phoenicia is just slightly above, Syria is just slightly above the area that's sometimes known as Judea. Let me say a few words of introduction on the Judean diaspora or the Jewish diaspora, and Judean groups in Asia Minor specifically, and then we'll get into some of the evidence for assimilation and dissimilation that we're looking at. In other words, the ways in which they maintain their cultural identity and are dissimilar from other people, and the ways in which they assimilate and, and participate within cultural life in the cities where they live. Our evidence for the Judean diaspora is both literary, as you can imagine, and archaeological, including inscriptions. So we have, for example, from Egypt, extensive writings from uh, a diaspora Judean, Philo of Alexandria. Philo is a Judean who either during his life or more likely his family had already emigrated to Egypt, to the city of Alexandria. And he was a philosopher as well, trained in Stoic philosophy, and so we have extensive writings from Philo some of which we've used even when we were talking about this whole idea of how Judean associations might be viewed as associations. I drew on Philo for that, but we have tons of writings from him and therefore we can do a little bit more of a cultural study of one particular diaspora Judean if you wanted to, and some people have. You could extensively study Philo and see evidence of acculturation and evidence of his maintaining cultural identity as an intellectual, upper-class sort of guy in the diaspora. And so we have that sort of evidence for Diaspora Judeans. Within Philo's writings, he refers frequently to Judean groups both in Egypt and elsewhere in the Mediterranean world. So that gives us information that we can use there, too. The other main source is Josephus that you, that you had to read for today, and I'll get you guys to help me understand some of his uh, material that we looked at soon enough. So once again, with Josephus, you could do extensive study of Josephus as an example of a Judean who's acculturated to Roman and Greek life. He writes in Greek, by the way. Josephus, a Jerusalemite from Jerusalem, right, from Judea, 
who uh, ultimately ends up in Rome as a friend of the Romans and is supported by the Roman imperial regime and in, in his research, so that he uh, engages in his research in part with the support of the emperors. But that's not what we're focused on. We're more focused on these associations of Judeans and seeing what can we know about the average group of Judeans in relation to the society where they live. The main evidence that helps us with that are inscriptions. Josephus has those decrees, which used to be inscriptions potentially, that he cites and that you guys read parts of and browse through. But we have also actual inscriptions that have been found from various parts of the Mediterranean world, including cities of Asia Minor, which seems to have been a hub of activity for Judeans, that give us a, a glimpse into the life of specific Judean groups at different places. And so that's what we're going to get into today. So let's get on to that question of how Judean associations related to surrounding society. Where do we see evidence of assimilation and dissimilation? Of fitting in and adapting on the one hand and of remaining different, dissimilating, being dissimilar, right, uh, on the other. First of all, let's just quickly survey you guys for your impressions from reading Barclay and Mitchell. You read those two different scholars, the one that was giving you a general overview of the province of Asia, Barclay, and then the scholar who is more getting into some of the inscriptions, which is Mitchell. For those of you listening on the podcast, I should mention which readings the students had. The following discussion for the next five minutes here is about two different articles they read, and I've had to edit down considerably the discussion, as you can imagine, because of the students wouldn't necessarily want to be in this podcast. The first thing that they read was John Barclay's chapter on Roman Asia in his book, Jews in the Mediterranean Diaspora from Alexander to Trajan. The second one they read was Stephen Mitchell's article in his book, Anatolia Landmen and Gods in Asia Minor. Uh, Mitchell has an excellent chapter that introduces honoring the gods in this Asia Minor in this period, including a good discussion of Judeans within the context of the broader culture of the time. So each of these articles were concerned with the question of where did Judeans fit or not fit within the culture of cities in Roman Asia. It happens to be that Barclay goes further back into the first century BCE, as we'll mention, and sees the change from uh, sort of higher tensions during the Civil War period in Asia Minor in the mid-first century BCE these sort of tensions we find in Josephus that we'll get to soon. We begin with Barclay here. So that's an interesting argument he has. It's, it's a little more nuanced, isn't it, to say that depends on what time period you're looking at, what the situation would be even in the same region. Mm-hmm. It's in that context of economic troubles in Asia Minor generally that the big pile of money floating around becomes a little more of a problem for uh, some of the Greeks and the Romans in that context, right? Yeah, and so ethnic tensions are related to it. And and so the situation of the Judeans may be more negative at that time period, first century BCE, than it would be later. Or it would also depend what city you're in. That there's definitely in the decrees we read in Josephus that we'll get into, there's signs that in some cities, the Judeans are doing very well in terms of their relation with the civic authorities and, and, and others, at least at some points. And in other cities, not so well. So it depends on what city, what region, what time period. Each of those issues, you get a different answer as to how are Judeans fitting or not fitting within the society where they are. 
So he talks about Apollonius Molon that we're going to read for the next week. What is the accusation? Do you remember any of the accusations that are leveled against Judeans because they don't worship the Greek gods? Wasn't uh, one of them atheism? Yeah, so the atheism is one of them. And the other thing that they, Apollonius Molon at least, accuses them of is misanthropy. They don't, they don't hang out with us, they must hate humanity. So the Judeans hate humanity and uh, don't worship the gods. It's one of the accusations against them. That, you know, that, that sort of recurs in different sources. So that obviously changes the dynamic, if someone thinks that, of how Judeans would relate to that particular person who thinks like that. But whether or not that literary elite perspective actually represents how it's all going on in the ground is another issue altogether, right? Obviously, the reality of how Judeans relate to other Greeks and Romans could include stere those stereotypical things that are causing tensions, but it could also be something else altogether. So we can't assume that it's the same everywhere and that everyone thinks the same thing, but it's worth noting that that's there, though. Uh, and that, that, could, that sort of potential for tension could arise at different periods based on the fact that the Judeans don't worship the gods of the Greeks. In Josephus, there's that passage, he may have quote, quoted it, uh, where Josephus says that he's quoting a document, one of the documents uh, from one of the cities, and the, the members of the city say, you know, um, if the Judeans want to live with us, why don't they worship our gods? That sort of phrasing that we have in Josephus uh, to express that sentiment that's sometimes there. We've seen that even immigrant groups like Syrians and Phoenicians are more readily likely to adapt their god to the gods of the host society. We've seen Phoenicians and Syrians using Greek gods' names to describe their ancestral gods from back home. That's something that Judeans do not do. Two different immigrant groups, one of which adapts in, 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 in that way, another one that does not adapt in that way. Uh, and so that's related to this tension, potential tension, that could exist. Because Greeks are used to immigrants living in their city, so they're not going to, it's not just because the Judeans are immigrants that, that there's that problem. There's that added twist of them being immigrants and happen to be the only immigrants in the whole Mediterranean world who won't identify their god with other people's gods and who, at least in, in most of the evidence, won't worship the gods of the Greeks and Romans to the point where they're called, accused of being atheists. Mitchell, in a way, argues a similar thing to what Barclay does. He moves on into the later period, though, but he surveys some evidence we're going to get into soon. We won't go into the details until we get to the evidence. But he argues for integration, doesn't he? In the Roman period, at least, in the first, second, third century CE. Uh, whereas Barclay argues less integration in the first century BCE, more tensions, and even though there's some integration, but first century, second century, third century CE, more integration. Even Barclay argues that. He thinks of the first century BCE as an anomaly in terms of relations based on that economic situation in Asia Minor, where cities aren't even able to keep their own temples running, which leads them to be a bit upset about piles of money going out to support a temple in some immigrant group's homeland. Let's go through some of the evidence now. You could do a study of individual Judeans and how they acculturate, but we're more focused on a group of Judeans and how the group is relating to society and to the culture around them. And this issue of regional and chronological variations is what we've already noted with regard to our readings in Barclay and Mitchell, that we can't generalize about 
this precise relationship between Judean groups and society. We can't generalize about it everywhere. And then on top of it, we got to ask, well, uh, what time period, what city are we talking about? Which particular Judean group is it? And then you begin to be able to say something about how they relate to society. What you can generalize about is that you find both sides of the coin of acculturation and dissimilation that we've been looking at so far. You see evidence of dissimilation and tensions that can arise because of dissimilation. In other words, a cultural minority group or an ethnic group drawing sharp boundaries around themselves or some definite boundaries around themselves, identifying themselves with their homeland and that this results in tensions and also acculturation, that sort of the, the boundaries, the, the permeable boundaries around the group, around the Judean group that allows that group to relate to society at large. So let's go into that, starting with cultural maintenance and dissimulation. The decrees in Josephus are most helpful for that, but they even give us evidence for acculturation, as we'll soon. But, but they're most evident and helpful for the cultural maintenance, that ethnic identity maintain, maintenance that we have, and the dissimulation, the dissimilarities between the Judean groups and other groups within the society where they live. So this is Josephus's Jewish antiquities, or Judean antiquities, that you read portions of. This, every one of his writings, in some way, is trying to say Judean culture is legitimate, has a long history, should be accepted, fits within the Mediterranean world, should be given special privileges. So he's writing in the first century C, right? He's writing, he was a participant in the, in the war uh, that ended in 70. He, he was a general in Galilee. He was ch in charge of part of Galilee during the Judean War and then turned himself over and became a buddy of Vespasian in that, the emperor. Let's talk about these decrees in Josephus. I want to introduce them to you a little bit. The first thing to note here is the problems with these sources. And Barclay goes into this in, to some extent. We have in Josephus a collection of all kinds of civic and imperial documents, all collected together for a particular purpose. And let me read you the purpose, because Josephus is quite explicit about it, and then this relates to some of the problems in using it. Because can we trust that these are actual documents, or how much has Josephus modified them? Is Josephus making some of them up? Even if he's not making them up when he's copying down the documents he has access to, is he deliberately changing things and this is why we have errors in them? But the reason he gathers these decrees involving civic authorities and imperial authorities is precisely that apologetic purpose. And he's explicit about it. Let me read you the passage 185, which begins the whole series of decrees, where he's explaining why he's gathering them here. Here it seems to me necessary to make public all the honors given our nation and the alliances made with them by the Romans and their emperors, in order that the other nations may not fail to recognize that both the kings of Asia and of Europe have held us, Judeans, in esteem and have admired our bravery and loyalty. Since many persons, however, out of enmity, enemy attitudes, to us refuse to believe that what has been written about us by Persians and Macedonians, because these writings are not found everywhere and are not deposited even in public places, but are found only among us and some other barbarian peoples. While against the decrees of the Romans, nothing can be said, for they are kept in the public places of cities and are still to be found engraved on bronze tablets in the capital, in Rome. 
And what is more, Julius Caesar made a bronze tablet for the Judeans in Alexandria, declaring that they were citizens of Alexandria. From these same documents, I will furnish proof of my statements. Accordingly, I will now cite the decrees passed by the Senate and Julius Caesar concerning Hyrcanus and etc. So now he's going to go to, into all these documents. To him, they're a way of defending Judeans and saying, look it, there's a long history of important authorities having positive relations with us Judeans. That's what everyone should do. So that's his whole spin uh, here. But in the process of giving the documents, the details there show you that there's tensions. Even though he's arguing that this shows positive relations between non-Judeans and Judeans, in the documents themselves, part of the reason the Romans need to reaffirm a positive relation with the Judeans is because local Greeks in some cities aren't getting along with the Judeans, right? So it starts to reveal those negative sides to relations, even though he's obsessed with the positive relations. Let me just sort of walk you through a few of the decrees that illustrate some points about this dissimulation and a cultural maintenance. So there's a document that Josephus cites involving the people of Pergamon passing a decree. This one is from the 2nd century BCE. So it's quite early, this one. So it's interesting to note that Judeans potentially are already active in Asia Minor in that part of northern, northwestern Asia Minor, up near Pergamon there, by the late 2nd century BCE. This is a decree of the people of Pergamon, and it refers to a, the senatorial decree by the Romans in the process. That's why Josephus likes it. So it begins, Decree of the People of Pergamon. This is in 14, 247 to 255. It's quite a long one. Decree of the People of Pergamon in the presidency of Cratopis on the first of the month, Dicios, a decree of the magistrates, as the Romans, in pursuance of the practices of their ancestors, have accepted dangerous risks for the common safety of all mankind and strive emulously to place their allies and friends in a state of happiness and lasting peace. The Judean nation and their high priest, Hyrcanus, have sent as envoys to them Straton, son of Theodotus, Apollonius, son of the Alexander, Aeneas, son of Antipater, Aristobulus, son of Amyntus, and Sosipater, son of Philip, worthy and excellent men, and have made representations concerning certain particular matters. So Judeans have sent an ambassadorial team. Whereupon the Senate passed a decree concerning the matters on which they spoke, to the effect that King Antiochus, son of Antiochus, shall do no injury to the Judeans, the allies of the Romans, and that the fortresses, harbors, territory, and whatever else he may have taken from them shall be restored to them. So here it's a, referring to negative relations between Judeans and some authorities. Here, King Antiochus, the Hellenistic king, and the Romans in allegiance with the Pergamenes actually standing up in a way for the Judeans' right to have those things back. Let's move to another one, the, the Parion uh, one from Perium, which is also in northwestern Asia Minor, somewhat near Pergamon to some degree. So this is what this document, uh, the Ju Josephus cites, says, Julius Gaius, in other words, Julius Caesar, praetor, consul of the Romans, to the magistrates, council, and people of Parion. Greeting. So here it's Julius Caesar in about 46 BCE, most likely, if this is historical writing to the, the civic body uh, at Perion, a Greek city. The Judeans in Delos and some of the neighboring Judeans, 
some of your envoys, also being present, have appealed to me and declared that you are preventing them by statute from observing their national customs or ancestral customs and sacred rites. Now it displeases me that such statutes should be made against our friends and allies and that they should be forbidden to live in accordance with their customs and to contribute money to common meals and sacred rites. For this they are not forbidden to do even in Rome. For example, Gaius Caesar, our consular praetor, by edict forbade religious societies, the Asoi, this is one of those ones we cited earlier, to assemble in the city. But these people alone he did not forbid to do so or to collect contributions of money or to hold common meals. So here a Roman authority dealing with civic authorities not allowing Judeans to engage in their activities. So at Perion, in the 40s BCE at least, the relationship between the Judean ethnic group and the Greek society as a whole was negative, obviously, at least the uh, civic authorities had passed some sort of statute that had limited the ability of Judeans to engage in their ancestral customs. In the process, it refers to the fact that they have their own, this is what we're noticing here, they're preserving their own, they're maintaining their cultural practices from the homeland, observing their national customs or their ancestral customs and sacred rites. They also gather together for common meals, it talks about here, and, they, and it mentions that they gather money together. So this whole idea of a Roman authority reaffirming the right of Judeans to engage in their own ancestral customs is what we're seeing here. And in this case, the Greek authorities doing something that, to the Judeans, at least, seemed like a hindrance. What exactly it was, we don't know. This diplomacy that we're seeing here is not peculiar to the Judeans. Just about anyone can do it. If there's a Roman authority nearby and you can get his attention and get some time with him, you can engage in diplomacy as a group. We've even seen it in some of the other evidence uh, of an association sort of sending word to the emperor about celebration they had, remember, uh, in uh, the birth of one of the emperor's sons. And then the emperor writing back a letter. So this is, this is just part of the di diplomatic relations of Roman rule that we're seeing reflected here. But here, an ethnic group having the, their right to engage in their ancestral customs being reaffirmed by a Roman authority against someone in the city who is trying to uh, lessen their ability to do that. Maybe on that issue of collecting money, it's worth saying something about the temple tax now. But there's different signs of maintaining their ethnic identity and, and the culture of the homeland in this evidence that we're looking at. First of all, there are many, many documents in Josephus, not necessarily the ones you read, that reflect the fact that Judeans who have gone to cities of Asia Minor and elsewhere living in the Greek cities, have formed groups together to express their ethnic identity and their belonging together as an ethnic group and collect money together to send back home to the temple, the temple tax, to support the whole activity of the temple in Jerusalem, the, to support the priests and the sacrificial activities that go on day after day in the temple in Jerusalem up until 70 CE when the temple was destroyed. So we have m many, many examples from Josephus and from outside of Josephus, in Cicero's writings, we have a case of a Roman authority taking the money for the temple tax away from the Judeans. Cicero, as a lawyer, defending the Roman imperial authority. But nonetheless, this is reflecting they're maintaining their ethnic identity. They're collecting together money to send to the homeland in honor of their, the god they worship, their ancestral god, Yahweh. 
The other thing that recurs over and over again in all these documents, or almost all of them, is this phrase, ancestral customs or national customs. It's sometimes translated for you. This is something we're familiar with from those inscriptions from Delos about the Tyrians and Berutians, right? This is a way of expressing the connection to the homeland. Our ancestral customs from back home, including the gods we honor from back home, or with the Judeans, the god we honor from back home. Frequently, the honoring of the Judean god comes up in these documents, that this is something that the Judeans who emigrate continue to do, to honor the god of their homeland. Sabbath observance repeatedly comes up. They're observing the Sabbath, something that's outlined in the Torah, indicating that they try and follow the Torah to some degree, even though they're out in the diaspora. We've mentioned the impact of that on in military service. You can't really serve in the military, and that's why there's these exemptions from uh, Roman imperial military service as a result. Finally, we saw a lot, see lots in this documents, lots of evidence of communal life and activity, gathering together for meals. Also, sacred rites being referred to in honor of their god, their ancestral god, Yahweh. So all of this is sort of popping up again and again in this literature. All right, so we've looked at a couple examples, Pergamon, Perion. Let's look at Sardis uh, and Heliconassus before we take a break. For Sardis, we have two different documents that I've mentioned here, 14.235 and 14.259-61 in Judean Antiquities. This one here is involving Sardis, and, it, and we're, again, we're going to get some incidental information that's important to us in the process of Josephus showing a re positive relation between a Roman authority and Judeans. Lucius Antonius, son of Marcus, proquestor and proprietor, to the magistrates, council, and people of Sardis. Greeting. So here it's uh, Roman authority in about 49 BC, if this is really a historical document, writing to the civic authorities of Sardis. Let's see what the evidence is here about relations between the Romans and the Judeans, which is going to be positive because that's what every document Josephus is giving us is. But what about the relation between the Sardian civic authorities, and therefore people in Sardis, and Judeans? Here's what we get here. Judean citizens of ours have come to me and pointed out that from the earliest times they have had an association of their own in accordance with their native laws, their ancestral customs, and a place of their own in which they decide their affairs and controversies with one another. So they have sort of like an internal court within the Judean ethnic group at Sardis. And upon their request that it be permitted them to do these things, I decided that they might be maintained and permitted them to, to do so. So here, obviously, Judeans had approached the Roman authority to get uh, affirmation of their special privileges within Sardis. Here, there's no sign of tensions between the Sardis institutions and the Judeans. It's actually that they've long had a place. The civic authorities have to give you a place if you're an immigrant group. Remember back with the Berutians or Tyrians at Delos, one of the other, two of those guys, they referred to the ambassador being sent to Athens to get permission. Remember, Athens had control over Delos to get permission to build their temple. So this is what we're having reflected here. Judean immigrants getting permission from the civic institutions to have a place to meet, obviously maintaining their ancestral customs, and yet also fitting in the society and, and actually being given permission by the civic bodies to do what they're doing, and from a Roman authority here affirming that same uh, situation. 
The other document we have from Sardis is worth looking at too because it reflects a similar situation. Decree of the people of Sardis. The following decree was passed by the council and people on the motion of the magistrates. Whereas the Judean citizens living in our city have continually received many great privileges from the people. That's the civic body of the people. That's civic institution. And have now come before the council and the people and have pleaded that as their laws and freedom have been restored to them by the Roman Senate and people, they may, in accordance with their accepted customs, come together and have a communal life and adjudicate suits among themselves and that a place be given them in which they may gather together with their wives and children and offer their ancestral prayers and sacrifices to God. It has therefore been decreed by the council and the people that permission shall be given them to come together on stated days to do those things which are in accordance with their laws, and also that a place shall be set apart by the magistrates for them to build and inhabit, such as they may consider suitable for this purpose, and that the market officials of the city shall be charged with the duty of having suitable food for them brought in. There's going to be a special thing, kosher food, for Judeans, arranged by the civic body of Sardis. There's somewhat positive relations. So that differs from city to city and time to time, the relationship between the Judeans and the people in the city where they live, and the relationship between the Judeans and Roman authorities is different from case to case. Josephus only gives us the positive ones of Judeans with Roman authorities. In the process, sometimes it's positive with the civic authorities, sometimes negative with the civic authorities. We're getting partial evidence, but nonetheless useful evidence for what we're trying to get at. Look at Halicarnassus before we take a break. This is a decree of the people of Halicarnassus. Halicarnassus is southeast of Ephesus. Decree of the people of Halicarnassus. In the priesthood of Memnon, son of Aristides, and by adoption of Euonymus, something missing, of Anthesterion, it's the month of Anthesterion, the people passed the following decree on the motion of Marcus Alexander. So someone in the civic, the democratic meeting of the body of citizens made a motion that was passed by the citizen body of Halicarnassus. Whereas at all times we have a deep regard for piety towards the deity and holiness, and following the example of the people of Rome, who are benefactors of all mankind, and in conformity with what they have written in, to our city concerning their friendship and alliance with the Judeans, to the effect that their sacred services to God and their customary festivals and religious gatherings shall be carried on, we have also decreed that those Judean men and women who so wish may observe their Sabbaths and perform their sacred rites in accordance with Judean laws and may build places of prayer near the sea in accordance with their native custom, their ancestral custom. And if anyone, whether magistrate or private citizen, prevents them, he shall be liable to the following fine and owe it to the city. So these Judeans, some, in some cases, already in this evidence where we have tensions in some of the cases, we have clear evidence of Judeans integrating and being given a place, socially and culturally and literally, within the Greek city. They're given a place literally in some of these, in the Sardis document, they give a place to build a place. In the Halicarnassus, a place to have prayer houses. But they're also, in some sort of metaphorical way, given a place within culture, aren't they? By the civic authorities of a city doing this. The way it ends there is that no one's allowed to prevent them from doing it, and there's a fine instituted. So maybe some people at Halicarnassus did have run-ins and tensions with some Judeans that led to the civic bodies sort of reaffirming what they thought. 
of the whole situation there and how this immigrant group should be treated. 